Now, we're in Matthew chapter 17. We're looking at a, at a, a story that in Christian circles is simply known as the transfiguration. And you're maybe like, well, what, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's, let's discover. Okay, Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Let's pay attention to what we call the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So... Also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So I'm not, we're not going to focus on the whole reading, just uh, especially the first um, eight verses. I've heard on a number of occasions from individuals, um, and I've also read about this as well, that for, for some people who um, are, are dabbling with all things Christian, or maybe uh, reading the Bible, or maybe hearing a sermon like this for the first time. It's very interesting that on a number of occasions I've heard them say, you know, it was just a phrase, or it was just one verse of the Bible, that, that through that, God, like, he, he fired an arrow that just went straight through the air, and it landed really deep within my heart. And it was that verse that was the catalyst for me <laughs> to draw near to Jesus and to become a Christian. What that does is shows you the power that the Bible has and the power of what we call the Spirit of God connecting with the message or even just a phrase or a text of the Bible to create new life and a new trajectory in someone's life. It's very, very interesting. Now, with that having been said, um, I'm kind of hard-pressed when I look at this passage to say, well, there's that one verse that, that could be that arrow, although it, it could. And the reason why I say that is because when you, when you, when you take a look at this story, it, it, it's kind of mystifying, especially if you, you have heard it for the first time, you read it for the first time. But even if you're somewhat familiar with it, it, it raises all kinds of questions like uh, this word transfigured. What in the world does that mean? I mean, it's not a word that we, I, I would dare say not one of us over the past year has used that word transfigured in our normal conversation. What does it mean? 
So that's a question. Another one is this. We read in this passage that you have Jesus on this mountain with three of his disciples. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, appears two individuals, Moses and Elijah. Who were those guys? What were, and, and maybe you say, well, I know them because I know the Old Testament because they come from the Old Testament. Okay, but what's the significance of Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus? We're going to broach that. Um, another question is this. It's, it's Peter, a leader among the disciples, who kind of blurts out and says, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, um, I'll build three tents, one for Moses, one Elijah, and one for you. Why did he say that? That was kind of weird. And then, and then finally this, uh, here's something that I thought about personally, and that is, how did Peter know that those two individuals that were talking with Jesus, how did he know that they were Moses and Elijah? I mean, to sound a little sarcastic, what were they doing, wearing name tags? I mean, what's, what's the deal with that? Or maybe, maybe he heard them conversing with each other, and he heard Jesus refer to them by their names, Moses and Elijah. You see, we can raise all kinds of questions about this passage. So it's kind of a perplexing, mystifying passage. I'd like to say it's a rather intriguing passage. It's worth exploring. So let's do that. Let's explore the passage. So what do we find in the story? I'm going to retell the story a bit. So you have Jesus at a certain point in his ministry. He's nearing the cross. Okay, this is why this is a good passage for Lenten season. And uh, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Now, if you grew up in the Christian faith, you know that Jesus had, well, initially he had many, many disciples, and then it started funneling down to these 12 main disciples. And then among the 12, you have those who are what we call the top tier three disciples, who are closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this high mountain and he does so in order to do something that, that Matthew, in his account, doesn't really explain. Now, when, when you start reading the Bible and you read something like uh, an account like this of Jesus and what we call the transfiguration, you will soon discover in the Bible that when you go to other books of the Bible, they also record this incident, and what they do is they add a few details. So here you have Matthew saying that Jesus and his disciples, Matthew or um, uh, Peter, James, and John, went up this high mountain, but he didn't say why. Luke, in his account, tells us why. To do this. To pray. And as a little bit of a, an aside, and this is not the main point of the past, but I find that's rather interesting, and what you discover is when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, you see that this is central in their ministry, in his ministry, we read that in the midst of Jesus' busy ministry, in fact, the Bible says many times that, that Jesus was so busy at times that he did not even have time to eat with his disciples. So very busy life. But Jesus always intentionally, even if he had to get up early in the morning, he would take time to pray. And Jesus also prayed with his disciples. In fact, it was Jesus who taught his disciples how to pray. And he taught them the Lord's Prayer. And what we need to remember is that if, if Jesus thought it important to pray, to pray by himself and pray with his disciples, how important it is for us as well. In fact, you know what you find in the Bible? That oftentimes it's prayer that preceded significant events in the Bible. For instance, you see that in the Old Testament, you see that here, Jesus prays with his disciples, or maybe he just prays alone, and what happens next? He's transfigured. I'll get to that in just a moment. 
Then later on, we'll look at this next week, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before his crucifixion. Jesus goes into Gethsemane in order to pray. What happens the next day? He's crucified, a significant redemptive event for the history of the world, for us. Before the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that empowered and energized the church for mission, we read that the church gathered together, and what did they do? Collectively, they prayed. Peter was arrested, that we read in the book of Acts, following the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. He's put in prison. And people don't know if he's going to live or die in prison. So what does the church do? Instinctively, intuitively, they gather together in order to pray. And then you take a look at the history of the church. And when you look at the history of the church, there are times where you have the descent of the Spirit and there's an intensification of the work of the Spirit of God opening the hearts of nominal Christians and opening the hearts of those who are not Christians, who are unconverted. What preceded that intense work of the Holy Spirit? It was God's people who gathered together in order to pray. Prayer. Let me ask you something. Do you need a change in your life and do you need an intensification of God's work in your life? Then let me ask you this. Are you praying for that? Are you praying fervently for that? Do we want a great work here at Pathway? where we have an intensification of the work of the Spirit who gives us a deepening understanding of the Word of God and love among each other and a witness to this city. Are we a praying people? It is my prayer as a pastor, I think it's a prayer of the leaders of this church as well, that we more and more commit ourselves as we express our dependence upon God in prayer. In prayer. That's what Jesus does. So we move on. It's while Jesus is praying with his disciples that something wonderful happens to him, but also something that's terrifying to the disciples. And what happens is that Jesus is transfigured. Now you go, what in the world does transfigured mean? And that's, that's not only a question of kids, it's a question of, of adults. Well, you know, we hear the word trans all the time today, don't we? Trans this, trans that. Trans simply means change. And figuration means a figure. So what we have with Jesus is we have a, a change in his figure, or more accurately, it's a change in his appearance. And we read as a result of this change in appearance that his face begins to shine like the sun and his clothes become white as light. In fact, the gospel writer Mark tells us Jesus became so white that he became more white than any bleach could bleach his clothes. And you must have th you think, you know, you ever read the story and you kind of you step back from it, you kind of go, what would it be like to be there and see that, you know? But they see this, and the disciples are in wonder, but they're also terrified. So it must have been an earth-shaking thing for them. But they see this before them. And as Jesus is transfigured, what we read as we go on in the story, because I'm retelling part of the story and showing us some of the significance of what's going on here. As Jesus is transfigured, you have two individuals who, start, who meet with him. Now, how did they get to him? I don't know. They probably appeared out of nowhere, but here they are. And there are two individuals, and their names are Moses and Elijah. So now you've got three there. So you've got Peter, James, and John, the three, and then you've got Jesus, three. Jesus with also Moses and Elijah. And the passage says that they meet with Jesus and they're conversing with Jesus. 
And the original language gives us the impression that Jesus wasn't in a, in a formal state of affairs here and he was teaching something or he's preaching at them, but the original language gives us the impression it was kind of a casual conversation going on. So Peter, James, and John are witnessing this casual conversation. The question is, there's all kinds of questions in this story. The question is, what are they talking about? What are they talking about? And the thing is, when you read Matthew, you can read till the end of the day and not figure that out. He doesn't say. But the gospel writer Luke does. A.V., would you put that up there, that first one? Take a look at this from the gospel of Luke. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Now, pay attention to that last phrase, or last part of the sentence. And he spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You go, his departure? What do you mean? His departure from this earth. His departure from life. In other words, this is what you have going on here. You have Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus about his imminent death. Right? So Jesus is going to be arrested. Jesus is going to go on trial. Jesus is going to be indicted as guilty. And Jesus will go to the cross. And Jesus will be crucified unto death. And they know this. They're interacting with Jesus about this. And they're saying essentially to Jesus. We may read into that. Jesus, you know your mission. Do not become daunted. Do not become weary. Do not be afraid. Move on to the end of the mission. Your people need you. And your people need you to pay the penalty for human sin, which is weighty indeed. And that is death. And so they encourage him to continue on to the end. It's like a marathon runner, right? And they're running along and they're at maybe mile 20 out of the 24 and people give them little things, right? Give them little cups of water. Just keep going, keep going to the end. Oh, to be a fly on the wall to be able to listen in on that conversation. And we look at this, and, and we read these two names, and we read, you know, uh, Moses and Elijah, and we go, huh, okay. Now, if, if you know the Bible, right, the first, first part of the Bible, the first two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament, and you got 39 books. And if you read those 39 books, you're going to read about Moses and Elijah for the pretty significant figures. But there's other significant figures as well, okay? Like, for instance, we might ask ourselves the question, okay, Moses and Elijah met with Jesus, but um, why not somebody like Isaiah? He was a major prophet. Or how about David the king? Or how about Aaron the high priest? Or how about Abraham? Abraham, the Bible says, is the father of believers. I mean, we read about him in the first book of the Bible. He is very significant. Why wasn't he talking with Jesus? And the reason for this is this, and you've got to put on the Jewish cap, have a Jewish mindset. The Jews would be thinking this, and the disciples are Jews, right? They're thinking, Moses, Elijah, well, that's, that's clear. They represent not just the Old Testament, they represent the law of the Old Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament. Now just stick with me for just a minute here. When we think of Moses, we think of Moses meeting on Mount Sinai where God gave the law to Moses. He says, I want you to give this to the people and I want you to teach it to the people so that they know how to live as a holy and a contrast people before me. 
But what the law does also, all those laws of the Old Testament, is they not only show the people how to fulfill the will of God in their lives, but it also expose their weakness in doing so. Because you've got this perfect law that expresses the perfect character of God, and then you've got people like you and me, and when we evaluate our lives in light of that perfect law, we realize, oh man, we're in trouble. We can't obey that. And thus it was Moses, through that law, that constantly pushed the people forward, looking forward to the Messiah, Jesus, to come, who would pay the penalty for law-breaking and put the people in the right relationship with God. That's the significance of Moses. And then very quickly you have Elijah. Elijah was a prophet among prophets, and he prophesied, he spoke to the people of God during the darkest days of sin and depravity, during those dark days of uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And it was Elijah who spoke to them as a prophet of the coming Jesus, of the coming Messiah to come, who would undo all this breaking of the laws of God and their, 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 their grieving of the heart of God, and he would make all things new. So here's my point. Both Moses and Elijah prophesied of Jesus. They predicted Jesus. They pointed forward to Jesus. In fact, the whole of the first two-thirds of the Bible point the way to Jesus. And now they're with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're saying, now is not the time to stop. Everything that we did in our ministry, in fact, all the Old Testament is pointing forward to you. Now you have come into this world. Don't stop with your mission. Go on to the cross and achieve the redemption of your people and the forgiveness of your people and the life-changing power of your people. Go on. So they encourage Jesus. And it's at this point where, where as, they're, as they're talking with Jesus, and as Peter, James, and John are terrified, you got this guy, Peter. He's a leader among the disciples. And he's terrified. He's unsettled. And he just blurts out. This is classic Peter. Classic Peter. Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth. And he blurts out and he says, Lord, um, if you wish, I'll build three tents. Um, uh, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. And you go, what, 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 was, what was he doing there? And what Peter was doing, uh, you know, a tent is a temporary dwelling. And we go camping. We have tents. And so Peter's basically saying, let's, let's build, uh, I'll build a structure for you. One for you, Moses, and one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. In other words, basically what he's saying here is this. Lord, Let's, let's just perpetuate this moment. Let's, let's, let's just continue this moment. Because really what we have in the, in the midst of your difficult ministry, this three-year ministry leading to the cross, when you hardly have time to eat and when you have so many people oppose you and where you have many griefs, what we have here now in your transfiguration is a taste of heaven on earth. So let's just continue this. Don't go on to the cross. Let's experience this together. And you go, you know what? Peter's doing something here that he doesn't realize he's doing. He's, he's putting a hurdle, or what the Bible calls a stumbling block, in the way of Jesus. And you know what? This is not the first time that he did it. A.V., will you put on that second uh, quote there? Um, in the chapter earlier from Matthew chapter 16, you look at that and I'll read from my Bible. This is, this is what happens. We read, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and then be killed. And then on the third day, be raised. That's Easter. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, which means adversary. You are a hindrance to me. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, you go, wow, Jesus got into the face of Peter, didn't he? What's up with that? Well, here's what you have going on. Jesus is saying, listen, he's predicting. Soon I'm going to suffer, and then I'm, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And, and this is what's going to happen to me. And Peter's all scared because Peter developed with the rest of the disciples a wonderful relationship with Jesus. They greatly respected him. And now there's the prospect of losing him. No. No, Lord, this will never happen to you. What's the point? Peter's thinking about himself. He's not thinking about Jesus. He's not thinking about us. And now here in the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's saying, no, no, no. Once again, you don't need to go to the cross. Let's just stay here and let's just experience this taste of heaven now. My friends, that, that's, a, that's a stumbling block for Jesus. That's a, that constitutes what we call a temptation. Because I want you to think about this. What would be happen if Jesus, Jesus never did go to the cross? You know what? We'd be wasting our time big time here. Wasting our time. We come here because of the cross. We come here because there's hope. We come here because the resurrection ultimately is true. Now, as I sometimes say in, in preaching, um, after taking some time to explain the story, I want you to step back from this just for a moment and think a little practically about things. You know, um, there is, and it's said from the pulpit here before, there is a little bit of Peter in every one of us right now. In fact, sometimes there's a lot of Peter in us. And Peter was really thinking, you know what? Um, the fact of the matter is, is that um, I'm not only afraid for Jesus, but I'm afraid, I'm afraid for myself. And we're a lot like Peter in that way. You know what Jesus says? Because, because, because what Peter says is, is basically, Lord, I don't, not only do I not want you to suffer and to pay the ultimate price for the sake of your mission, I don't want this either. Let's just continue doing what we're doing here right now. Now, what does Jesus say? Jesus calls every one of us, whether we be a Christian or not, Jesus lays out these words. He said, whoever come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you are a Christian, or if you're contemplating becoming a Christian, you know what Jesus requires of us, every one of us? He requires self-denial. He requires sacrifice. Ultimately, he requires that we die to ourselves. We die to ourselves. And who of us wants to do that? You know, the truth be told, when you look at your life, and I look at my life, our, 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 first, our first tendency, our first tendency is, is to avoid suffering in any way that we can, self-denial any way that we can, death to self any way that we can, any way we can. What really we want is to avoid suffering and enter into a realm whereby we can say we're Christians, but we also want the life of comfort as well. 
um, more than what we realize. There's a wonderful quote by a man named John Piper. Would you put that up there? Look at this quote. He says, as human beings, we do what we can to flee suffering. That's true. We move to safer neighborhoods. We choose milder climates. We buy air conditioners. We take aspirin. We come out of the rain. We know that, right? We avoid dark streets. We purify our water. We do not normally choose a way of life that would put us in peril every hour. Jesus' life is out of sync with ordinary human choices. Virtually no advertising slogans lure us into daily dying. Isn't that true? You read the advertising slogans, they'll say, you should buy this, you should consider this, because you what? You deserve it. Yeah, you deserve it. You know what we deserve? As Christians, we deserve to take on the calling of denying ourselves in order that we might follow Christ and recognize our need for Him. Now here, Peter is working with with Jesus, talking with Jesus and encouraging him actually not to go to the cross, but to just perpetuate the heavenly moment. Again, a very real temptation for Jesus. But I want you to think about Jesus, because preaching is about Jesus. Jesus could have gone the way of ease and of comfort, but he did not. Out of a burden to obey his Father's will and the mission that God placed before him, he said, I will move on. I will move on. That was his heart. And that was his life. So I, I want you to, I want to end with this. Because we need to draw this to a close. The Bible says this. And again, we are, we are all the same in this. The Bible says that we all struggle with the reality, and this was noted earlier during our time of confession, we all struggle with the reality of sin. And, you know, we may not want to hear that, but it's honestly, it's true. We know it's true. And you deal with the guilt that comes from that. And daily, whether in small ways or in large ways, we, we, not, only, we not only violate the will of God, we not only break His commands, but in heart, as well as mind, as well as in body. And, um, and, and thereby we also grieve the heart of God. And listen to this. Every time that we try to compensate for these failures by just performing just a little bit better so that hopefully that God above will actually begin to love me in the midst of my badness. When we do that, we try to compensate for that. You know what you're doing? You're actually ultimately saying, like Peter, Lord, you don't need to go to the cross because I can do it on my own. Or the opposite. When you don't fall into this, this of, of trying to compensate because you don't really care and you turn your back to God and you walk an indifferent life and you just figure, you know what, I'm fine on my own and I don't want to have to deal with the ultimate questions of origin and meaning and morality and destiny. I'm just going to put those things aside and not struggle with them. Every time we do that, in the midst of our indifference, we're saying to Jesus, I don't need you to go to the cross for me. I don't need you to go. Or any time that you and I forego the very things that God has given us, the very tools that God has given us to draw us to Jesus and to keep us in Jesus, which is, yeah, you probably guessed it, this book and a familiarization with this book, the Word of Life, 
And every time we forego, as I mentioned earlier, this life of prayer, which can even be short, where we cry out to God and you say, God, save me, help me. Every time we forego worship, every time we get a little slothful with that and say, you know what, I can't make it this week because I have this I got to do or that I got to do, when God has given us church worship for the sake of the building of our faith, Every time we kind of forego these things, you know, ultimately we're seeing something pretty significant and we're saying, you know what, I'm fine just the way that I am. A lot of us would never state that theologically or doctrinally, but by our lives, that's what we're saying. We're diminishing the cross of Christ. So my friends... This story about the Mount of Transfiguration and ultimately Jesus on the cross is Jesus' appeal to us to say, I didn't go to the cross for nothing. I went to the cross for you. If you're struggling with indifference, stop the indifference. If you're playing this game of performance to somehow make God love you, stop it. If you turn your back on the Lord and the spiritual disciplines and the means of formation in your life, stop it. Embrace the Christ. Embrace the cross. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with your sin, your indifference, whatever you're facing. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you a resting point. And that's the most beautiful thing that you can ever experience. To which the Father says, as we read in the passage, okay, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. To which our prayer must be, Lord, give me listening ears, and give me a receptive heart, and give me, O oh Lord, a willing spirit. Now, yeah? Let's pray for that right now. Let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter what our background, it doesn't matter our race, it doesn't matter our culture, it doesn't matter our mother language. Whatever differences we have, Lord, we are collectively all in the same boat. We're all in need. We're all in need of the gospel. We're all in need of the good news of Jesus. We're all, good. We're all in need of the cross. We're all in need of the resurrection. And we're all in need of Jesus Christ himself. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray for the intensification of your spirit in our life, that you would draw us to this Jesus, and that we may find our forgiveness and our joy and our rest in him. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.